Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey, everyone. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Guy Marzarati in this week for Scott Schaefer. And we're in Sacramento, where lawmakers have wrapped up their two-year legislative session last night. Guy was watching until the bitter end, which came a little before 1 a.m., as was our first guest, Politico Playbook California co-author Lara Corti. A bit later, we'll also be joined by Jessica Moore. She's Deputy Secretary for Forest and Wildland Resilience. She's going to talk about how this heat wave could impact wildfire season and what progress the state has made around preventing and battling blazes. Some of that may have come last night. So, But first, Laura Cordy from the illustrious Political Playbook. (laughs) Welcome to The Breakdown. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for doing The Playbook so we know what's going on on the days that we're not paying as close attention. (laughs) Hey, just doing my duty. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, it was, as it always is, a marathon ending. I always say lawmakers are like college students. They never do anything until... They absolutely have to. Mm-hmm. Although as journalists, like journalists, yeah, we shouldn't <laughs> really like throw glass uh, stones, right? Um, I would say one of the biggest kind of packages that came through is actually something that only came up in the last few weeks of session. This was uh, Governor Gavin Newsom's climate package. And, and the kind of centerpiece is $54 billion in climate spending and keeping the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant on. Lart, tell us first, how do you how did this all come together? And like any sense of why Newsom waited until the 11th hour? Yeah, I mean, nobody can, you know, look into the governor's mind, but we know what's going on, right? There's uh, record heat waves happening. I mean, we're still in a drought. We just had this big national conversation about water shortages in the West. And so, you know, about a month ago, three weeks ago, Newsom started showing up to the legislature, going to the caucuses and the Senate. and the Which East is Senate. rare. We should tell people. Like, yeah, the governor doesn't, doesn't do that a deign lot. to, like, go upstairs or come (laughs) down especially now that the offices are like you know so far away yeah (laughs) yeah so Newsom made the very bold choice of coming to talk to um, the lawmakers and say hey here's my plan we need to get this stuff done and you know I think a big part of this you can't overstate how important it is to keep the electrical grid functioning. That was a big liability for Gray Davis in 2003 that led to his um, recall Uh, that was at 
ultimately successful. So you have to keep the lights on and things are getting really dire in California in terms of having enough energy. And so but you also have the environmental advocates who are saying like, yeah, we want to keep the lights on, but we're tired of using uh, gas powered plants. We want to switch over to green energy. But the state just doesn't have enough green energy to fill it right now. So Newsom had to do this thing of, um, you know, kind of walking and chewing gum at the same time of figuring out how to make sure that the lights stay on while also fulfilling all these kind of promises and these obligations to push California towards a greener future. So that was really the big push in the last month. Energy deregulation, also like a late night, last second California legislature special kind of flashbacks there. But they couldn't have scripted a better night to (laughs) vote on this bill, right? It was insanely hot outside. There were all these Mm -hmm. concerns over blackouts. And that's something that seemed to come up a lot from lawmakers is saying like, this is a perfect example of why we need something like Diablo Canyon, which provides, you know, 8% of the state's electricity. And it's not affected by the wind, not affected by the sun. Right. That's the big thing. So you're you're totally right. We're about to enter a heat wave that's going to be really bad. Gavin Newsom came out on Wednesday before lawmakers entered the last hours of the session and said, listen, we really need to be thinking critically about grid reliability, especially right now. Um, and to your point about um, uh, different sources of energy, Diablo is a nuclear power plant, which means it operates 24-7. And that's one of the liabilities of wind or solar is that if the wind dies down or once the sun goes down, you lose that energy. And as it happens, people tend to really blast their ACs or use their dishwasher or their ovens after the sun goes down. Right. So that's when the grid gets really stressed. So um, that was the argument that the administration had for wanting to keep the nuclear power plant extended towards till uh, 2030. Right. I mean, we did see one bill fail in this package. It would have uh, sped up the targets for reducing greenhouse gases for with a 2030 deadline. Um, we also saw, you know, a lot of consternation among environmental activists around not just Diablo, but this carbon capture plan that essentially allows oil companies to sort of offset their emissions, right, mm-hmm. by putting carbon back in the ground. And to me, both Diablo and that kind of speak to, like, the challenge that I think people who support renewable energy are in, which is that there's downsides to a lot of this stuff, right? And we probably will need carbon capture in the long term. But, but, but you know, advocates for climate change and environmentalists say, well, this is a giveaway to oil industries. I'm just curious, like, what you guys see as where fossil fuel stands politically in California after <laughs> this session and just in this moment. Larry, go for it. Um, that's a great question. Um, I think that fossil fuel, to a certain degree, understands the they see the writing on the wall, right? California is one of the most ambitious governments in this space of wanting to transition to clean energy. Um, but the reality is that the state still very much relies on fossil fuels to keep the power going. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, the idea of totally abandoning fossil fuel right now, I think, um, or even Uh, the Diablo Canyon power plant right now is not super feasible. But to your point, this is the same thing with carbon capture. Environmental advocates just want to make sure that this idea of maintaining access to power um, isn't going to take the place of switching to green energy. They're worried that lawmakers or the administration is going to use this as kind of an excuse to not bring renewable energy online. Right. So that's their main concern. And Guy, I mean, we've been watching at KQD, one of our colleagues, some of the bills that died, which uh, would have sort of increased penalties for oil refineries that pollute and, and harm the communities around them. What's your take? Right. I mean, that was axed even, you know, pre last night. That yeah. was an inappropriate. But I think 
Look, one thing you see is Democrats have enough of a buffer in their votes in the legislature, certainly in the assembly, where they can lose a lot of Central Valley members, Democrats. I was watching two of them last night, Adam Gray, Rudy Salas, both Mm -hmm. running for Congress, both huge hopes for the party if they're going to keep the House and keep, you know, winning seats in California. They're okay to have them not support these bills. And in fact, it was beyond climate bills. Those two weren't supportive of gun legislation last night. They were basically... But that's good politics, right? If you think about it. If Dems have the votes, why put your members up to a tough vote that could, you know, show up in hurt ad. your chances to yeah. take back Congress, which ultimately would have far more impact on, you know, this, the nation's ability to kind of, and the world's ability to tackle pollution. Right. Well, and you say mm-hmm. it, right. it's a worldwide issue. And I think that gets back to the Diablo conversation is this, so many countries are grappling with this question of nuclear power and the need to just supplant what we have coming from right. solar and wind with a more reliable source. Uh, we were talking about this earlier, even Japan, which went through that incredible nuclear disaster a decade ago, is now starting to bring back uh, right. nuclear plants online, which is, you know. And there, we should say, I mean, this is there are huge safety questions. There's a lot of work <laughs> right. that needs to be done at Diablo, which is the whole reason for this package. I think my question is more like, why did this come so late in the game when for years we've heard this exact right. commentary from, you know, uh, energy climate advocates saying we need this power long term. We can't afford to have this close in, in a few years. It is really interesting to me. Um, I mean, we've known for I'm, I'm thinking about gas powered plants, right? There's several that are going offline that are scheduled to go offline in the next couple of years. And environmental advocates say, like, we've known this for a decade, that we're phasing this stuff out. And when we talk about right now, when you hear Democrats say, like, oh, we need to rely on Diablo because there's been supply chain issues and there's COVID-19. We knew about this way before the pandemic. And so I think environmental advocates are really frustrated. They're like, you keep, you know, pushing it down the field. Let's get something going. But I mean, that speaks to the politics, like the reality of politics. Right. And I think that one reason I would think, I mean, besides just the broader sort of what's happening in the news, the news of might wait is like, these are controversial issues. And the less time you have for people to lobby against them, like the yeah. the more likely you are to pass them. Um, all right. Well, let's switch gears. We've talked about the environmental stuff, climate change, abortion, obviously a huge political issue heading into the midterms. California is all in on protecting abortion rights. Uh, there's a measure on the ballot for voters to enshrine it in the Constitution. But we also saw a big package pass. Uh, it included $20 million to expand access to reproductive care in L.A., uh, allow trained nurse practitioners to perform first trimester abortions. Uh, Another one that uh, offers legal protections to people who travel here to perform or get abortions. Um, And then I think the most controversial was this one that bars coroner investigations uh, when a fetus dies. Mm -hmm. Um, What was the conversation like in the legislature, Lara? Like, is this was this even that like controversial among this <laughs> very heavily democratic body. Um, I mean, I would say no. I think there's it's you'd be hard pressed to find another issue in California where the advocates slash lobbyists are as lockstep with the the legislature and the administration as abortion. I mean, we saw immediately after Roe v. Wade was overturned, you had the president of Planned Parenthood Affiliates of California standing with the governor, with the first partner, saying we're going to take action. There was this package of 14 bills related to abortion rights, you know, everything from 
funding for information, from protecting people from out of states uh, from being prosecuted for coming here for abortion. And um, no, I think that it passed uh, relatively easily. This is kind of a slam dunk for Democrats. It's going to make a big difference in a couple of close state races this year. Um, it's definitely going to turn out more voters. Um, this is, uh, as far as I I think, you know, just the start. They wanted to show their their gravitas in this area to the world, and they uh, they definitely did. Well, and it's like a win-win for the governor, right? Because he gets to totally. kind of beat his chest, and they're actually doing some things that they all agree with. Right. One thing I was thinking about last night, Laura, is how many lawmakers for whom last night was the final mm. end of session? There's yeah. people termed out, leaving because of redistricting. What's your sense of how that affected all the business that happened in the Capitol over the last week. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you're on your way out the door, you kind of get to do whatever you want, right, without worrying about who you're going to uh, make angry. Um, the th- the area where this seemed most apparent to me was the failure of a bill to let the legislative staff unionize. Mm-hmm. Um, that made it through the Senate uh, earlier this session, and then it went to the Public Employment and Retirement System uh, Committee in the assembly. And uh, Chair Jim Cooper, who is actually out this year, he is running for sheriff in Sacramento. He originally tried to to pull that bill. Um, he didn't want to have it heard. But then after some pressure from, I believe, the speakership's office uh, did end up letting it be heard. And it, it died in committee. And some of the no votes on it were people who were leaving this year. Um, and that was really consequential. Um, and so... You know, we're going to have a whole new class of legislators coming in, in the fall. That's going to play into um, the ongoing speaker speaker fight, speaker yeah. fight which is not going to die anytime soon. So, Yeah, that'll be fascinating. Well, in the meantime, we will all be all eyes on Governor Newsom. He's got, you know, 30 days to sign or veto most of these bills. Uh, one we didn't mention that's a huge one is creating uh, this fast food uh, sort of franchise uh, framework so that there's, you know, wages and job protections are kind of the same across a lot of, you know, these low-wage industries. Um, Guy, I know you've talked yeah. a lot about that bill. Is that one you're watching? I mean, like, that, what you to me, for? that seems right, like one of the big ones to watch where yeah. we maybe haven't gotten such a signal from the administration. There were some concerns that the Department of Finance raised throughout the process, but that seems like a big one to watch over the next 30 days. So um, Senator Shannon Grove said McDonald's came to her office and said they will leave California if um, this bill passes. Do you guys think that's going to happen? No, because they're franchises. I don't know that that's up to McDonald's. I mean, I'll drive to Nevada bad. for McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> you, you heard it here. All right. I'm, I, I wouldn't cry, I guess. Personally, More I had of a, a McDonald's burger on a road trap for recently. And my husband and I were like, why do we let the kids pick? Um, no, but I think, you know, there's also always going to be sort of smaller issues. I mean, we know that there's been a lot of speculation that the governor, say, vetoed that safe injection site bill because of potential presidential ambitions. Sure. Anything else, Lara, before we go that like you're like, oh, this could be really sticky for Newsom or that, you know, you think... No, I mean, the big ones were the things that he were he was championing, right? right? Uh, the safe injection sites was probably the most controversial. Um, one, the other controversial bill by, you know, Scott Weiner about um, letting minors of a certain age get vaccinated without their parents' protection. I think that might have been a little bit sticky mm. for him. But uh, <laughs> Scott ended up pulling that uh, before it even got a vote, saying they didn't have the vote. So, All right. Well, they'll be back next year, I'm sure, trying on that. All right. We are going to let Lara Corti go. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Good talking to you guys. When we come back, we're going to be joined by Jessica Morris. She is Deputy Secretary for Forest and Wildland Resilience. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio.
I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Dilfetah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I am Marisa Lagos here with Guy Marzarati, and we are thrilled to welcome Jessica Morse. She ran for Congress in 2018 and is now Governor Gavin Newsom's Deputy Forest and Wildland Resilience Secretary. Jessica, welcome to The Breakdown. Thank you for having me. So we want to get into your family's history and, and all the work you're doing now around wildfires, but it feels like we should start with this heat wave, right? We're seeing high temperatures, low humidity, I think some scary conditions for people just in terms of staying safe. But what is the fire risk? What are you watching this weekend and in the coming days? Absolutely. I mean, the the extreme heat across the entire state is a major fire risk for California. And what we're going to see is the fire risk increase over the coming weeks following it. What's functionally happening is that there's a giant kiln drying out all of the dead fuel on the ground, all of the grasses, and it's drying it to really low moisture conditions. And so what that means is when a fire starts, it moves fast and hot, just like if you had dry firewood. Mm -hmm. We saw similar conditions to this uh, prior to the Creek Fire in 2020, where we had high tree mortality. Um, We had record-setting heat. Remember, that's when Death Valley clocked in at 130 degrees. The following week, we had a fire break out around Shaver Lake called the Creek Fire, which then burned at such high intensity because the fuel was so dry and there was so much wood on the ground that it created that 50,000-foot pyrocumulus, Mm -hmm. really dynamic dynamic, difficult that conditions. That was one where hikers had, and campers had to be... Exactly. Yeah, you had people um, evacuated by the National Guard in extreme conditions at Huntington Lake there. Um, Gratefully, we had no fatalities in that fire. But what happens is when the fuel, um, when there's a lot of fuel on the ground and it's really dry, um, then that's where you get these extreme fire behaviors and the fires start to create their own weather systems, which then causes what we saw on this fire or the McKinney fire um, earlier this summer, where that column went 50,000 feet in the air. It comes down like a splat. Mm. And so then you end up with hurricane force winds driving a fire front in every single direction. So the fire doesn't have then one front. It's a radius. And so that makes it incredibly hard um, to contain and, and to fight. So that's some of the conditions that we're concerned about. Those dry fuel loads that we're going to see from this heat wave make firefighting conditions on the ground much more unpredictable and more uh, difficult. Well, we'll be safe out there, everyone can Right, and it sounds like in the coming yeah. weeks, too, right? You really need to keep an eye it, out. It's now going to be this level of moisture, of, of dry fuel 
from being dried out until we get significant rain. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we'll be very vulnerable if there's dry lightning or human-caused fires. Right. Well, 95% of the fires in California are actually caused by people. And sometimes it's deliberate. We had 108 arson arrests this year. Wow. And sometimes it's unintentional. You know, it's somebody dragging a chain uh, when they are uh, off-roading or somebody's car, you know, backfiring along a road and igniting the grasses along the side of the road. So, or somebody having a gender reveal party. So so it's important um, that people are really alert to uh, their actions and that they're not creating sparks. Cal Fire has a One Less Spark campaign, so I'd encourage everyone to go check out Cal Fire's website. You guys can link to it and, uh, and get pro tips on how to keep your family safe. Well, as Marisa mentioned, your family history goes way, way back in California. <laughs> We're talking like covered wagons, right? Yes. Yes. My uh, my great-great-grandparents came over in uh, covered wagons in the late 1800s and landed in the town of Gold Run. And so we still have that original homestead in the family today. They were actually trained people when they first came. So they, uh, my great-great-grandmother manned the telegraph booth at Donner Pass in the early 1800s. Wow. She sat there alone and, uh, you know, the top of the pass with a little, you know, a little tote in her gun. And she was a very sort of, they were very kind of wild, wild west type of uh, folks um, who really, yeah, who created a lovely legacy for our family today. And you guys still have that homestead in your family. I'm curious, though, like, when you sat down, I assume you might have interviewed with the governor. Did you guys talk about that? Because I know he spent a lot of time in, like, Dutch Flat with his dad and extended yes, family. Yes. Uh, yeah, when I first met him when I was running for Congress, uh, I mentioned the Dutch Flat Gold Run connection, yeah. and uh, he was floored. And then I immediately started policy wonking on him about <laughs> how we can tackle the bark beetle pandemic, and that's, I think, what caught his attention. <laughs> right. He likes a You're policy like, yeah. wonk conversation yes. <laughs> for sure. So you actually grew up, though, in the suburb of Carmichael. Mm-hmm. Um outside of Sacramento, where we are. How did you, like as a kid and and growing into your adult years, like stay connected with that family homestead? Oh, absolutely. Well, we went up there and we were also very big outdoors people. And so we were always backpacking, hiking, fishing. My dad's a big hunter, so I'd go hunting with him up in the Sierras and the mountains. And so we always kept that sort of deep Sierra connection in addition to just visiting family on the homestead itself. But yeah, we were big, big backpackers. You're a big hiker, right? I'm a big hiker. And so that was kind of our family tradition. I think my first backpacking trip was when I was nine in Mount Lassen. And so we camped and hiked all over the Sierra. And so as a young adult, that really became ingrained in me. And I became just a big solo backpacker. And that's just a big part of my identity, really regenerate and rejuvenate in the mountains. Got to tell it, my nine-year-old it's time to get out there on the trail, right. man. Well, <laughs> carry, carry their own sleeping bag. Yeah. They can do it. It seems like service was really an emphasis in your childhood and kind of carried as a through line into your career as well, right? Absolutely. Yeah. My mom always had us out doing service projects um, in the community growing up and, um, you know, everything from, you know, sort of helping with like church help and also families in need. And um, and then I spent a lot of uh, my sort of high school years helping at-risk youth and uh, teaching them to appreciate mountains. And so then when I was in college, I discovered, you know, foreign aid and really had the sense of how to help the world globally and and really loved sort of that commitment to to public service. Yeah, tell us what you did. I mean, it's pretty incredible oh, start yeah, to it, your career. It was. It was really phenomenal. My first job at I mean, startling. I wouldn't necessarily give this as good advice uh, <laughs> for future youth of America. But uh, my first job out of college, I joined USAID and they 
within six months, they sent me to Baghdad. And uh, this was 2005. And so it was at the height of the war. What and was so- your family's reaction to that? <laughs> I told my mom that this was for her own spiritual growth. <laughs> <laughs> So you spent several years abroad. What did you learn from that time? Like, what are you bringing back to your service here? You know, I learned to think in terms of systems because I started recognizing and understanding working on foreign aid in Iraq versus, uh, you know, national security strategy in India. What I saw was the need to have systemic change as opposed to individual change. And so I've always been really fascinated by saying, what's the root of the problem and how do we get at that? So, for example, in college, I was in Ethiopia and um, and I was volunteering with Save the Children uh, during what was a green famine. So it had rained. It just was uh, there just wasn't any infrastructure mm-hmm. to be able to collect the water so the crops didn't grow properly. So everybody was starving, even though there had technically been enough rain. Right. And so what they started identifying was that people in Ethiopia didn't have individual land ownership. And so they had no incentive to put in water catchment and irrigation to improve the land to be uh, drought resilient. Mm, And so what they did is they created these, they started solving it from that standpoint of how do we give people land titles that they then have an incentive to start um, making those improvements and use that to gain access to capital. And it really made a big difference. You didn't start seeing famine in Ethiopia again until now, which is more war conflict driven as opposed to infrastructure driven. And so for me, that was a really sort of important lesson. I mean, just countless lessons like that throughout my career that really started having me ask these deep questions about what's the systemic problem in the spider web that needs to get addressed where a government intervention could help versus a private intervention. Yeah, that's really interesting. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown on KQED. We're talking with Jessica Morse, Deputy Secretary for Forest and Wildland Resilience in the Newsom administration. Some folks in Northern California might recognize your name. You ran for Congress in 2018. You lost to Tom McClintock in that race. Looking back, like, what did you make of that experience? What did you learn from that? Oh, it was a great experience. It was a lovely way to serve um, my community at a time when it just felt like uh, we were on a political precipice. You know, I had always been in public service. I hadn't been all that interested in politics um, because I really like getting deep into a problem set. And uh, but when I started seeing uh, my own community in the Sierra and Northern California start to go down a path that felt like it, it was it was the representation in 2018 just felt like we were having votes that were actually against our community. People were voting against rural health care. There was votes against rural broadband, against fire resilience. Um, and and I thought that's, you know, this is too important of a moment in our history for me to stand by. And so I, I dropped my life and moved home and uh, and thought, I wonder if I can run for Congress because you know, how do you start a congressional campaign from scratch? Um, <laughs> and again, not great advice that I would give to every everyone. Um, but but what I did that was really foundational for me is I did a listening tour um, for three months across the 10 counties of our district to not only understand, because it was clear that the national dynamics were really difficult right after Trump was elected. But then I wanted to understand what the local dynamics were. How are these national policies 
impacting my community? How would better representation improve um, California's Sierra Nevada communities? And so I went across 10 counties and listened to the real experts, the local officials on the ground, um, local nonprofit leaders, and really spoke to people who were trying to tackle problems. And so started hearing the real need for real um, substantive solutions. And and so that gave me that foundation and confidence that that I needed to serve at home mm-hmm. and, and that our community deserved somebody pushing for better policies and better solutions. And so I ran and a huge part of my platform was wildfire solutions. Well, yeah, let's get into that because yeah. that is now your job and you really came into it in the thick of a very challenging time for the state. And, you know, I feel like there's the long-term stuff, there's the climate change that, you know, the legislature just passed a huge package and are trying to tackle. But to your point, on the ground, what's immediately important to people is being able to protect their communities and homes. Mm -hmm. I I guess, where do you think we stand? I mean, after, I feel like 2017 was really a big wake-up call for folks, but we've, you know, we're still in this mega drought. Um, What do you see as the biggest wins and challenges right now in this moment? Absolutely. So uh, the advantage of the fire crisis is that it is solvable and 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 we actually know what to do. And we are starting to see our investments and the strategic shift that we've taken in California since 2018 start to pay off dividends. Um, the challenge is that the crisis is also accelerating. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, can our interventions and our mitigation efforts actually keep pace with the change in the climate crisis? Um, and so I'll get, let me give you a couple examples, right? So if you look at trend lines in fire, none of these are going to be straight, right? But the general trend since 2018 is um, downwards in terms of loss of life, loss of homes, yeah. and communities protected, um, and and so and that is direct a direct result of uh, better fire suppression response, as well as a much more comprehensive approach to wildfire resilience. And I'm, I can talk through what we mean by wildfire resilience because that's often a generic term. And and unfortunately, so, we're short on time. But what like what would you say is the biggest? element of that that's really is making a difference. There's three fronts to it. So we are protecting, we are restoring natural fire intervals to wide landscapes. Um, So we have to do by hand what 100 years of fire should have done. Mm -hmm. Um, We're then putting in strategic fuel breaks around communities. That gives firefighters a tactical advantage during a firefight. Like we saw in the Calder fire, flames went from 150 feet down to 15 feet when they hit the fuel breaks. And that's why South Lake Tahoe is standing today. Right. Um, And then we're also hardening homes and uh, and communities so that you have actually, so that when embers are crashing in on homes, they're less likely to ignite. And then you're not going to see an infiltration like you saw in Paradise where the fires went house to house. So those three together give you fire resilience. One of those alone is helpful, but Banana. three together is what is actually having us, you know, we have... 200,000 acres burned this year versus 2.2 million the same time last year. All right. We're going to have to leave it there. But that's a good note to end on. Jessica Morris, Deputy uh, Director of Forest and Wildfire Resilience. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. That's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Guys, our producer and our engineer is Katie McMurrin. Have a good one. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. 
They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 